We were in the prologue to the Gospel of John. That was our scripture reading. And I'll admit, we're probably not going to spend a ton of time there. I, I do want to stay rooted there, particularly in verse 14 uh, that, I, that I referenced, the Among Us passage, that uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt in our midst. Uh, and we are going to kind of stick through this theme, but I want to look at that idea throughout the Bible. So what does truth sound like? This is a truth that has been really impactful for me and my faith. I think when I began to realize that God wants, desires, wants to be with us, wants to live with us, wants to dwell with us, a lot of things in my mind that I had questions about started to click into place. And so this is simultaneously a really easy passage for me to preach on, or a really easy idea to preach on, because as far as biblical truths are concerned, I've probably thought about this one as much as any other one. And so I feel really confident to talk about it, but at the same time, that makes it really difficult because I have so much that I want to say, and to pare it down to this sermon can be really difficult. So, my name's Josh, I'm one of the pastors here at the house, and I am going to be your guide on this biblical odyssey tonight as I take you through the story of the Bible as it relates to dwelling. We're going to begin in Genesis 1. We're, we're starting at the beginning here. Uh, God creates everything, including humanity, and He calls everything that He creates very good. He creates a garden and places people in that garden. And while it's not clear if God is actually dwelling in the garden with them, it is clear that Adam and Eve have a particular access to God that nobody else has, that nobody else throughout the rest of history has. They have access to Him in His wisdom, trying to learn what is good and evil, not on their own, but by being in His presence. That's kind of the, how the Bible starts with Adam and Eve. And things go wrong, and they're exiled from the garden. And that's a really big deal, that exile from the garden, because a fracture happens in the relationship between God and humanity and His creation. And so much of the rest of the Bible is God creating pathways for His people to be in proximity to Him, to be close to Him, and to be in relationship with Him. And here is how the story sort of unfolds. So you have Abraham and this family that God chooses to be his people. And after hundreds of years, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And they haven't dwelt with God in the same way like the garden up until this point. And they're still not. They're enslaved. But God hears the cries of his people. And Exodus 29, verse 46, I, I think I have scripture references for almost everything that we're going to go through tonight, but be prepared. Like, we're going to go through a lot of things. Uh, so Exodus 29, 46 says it like this, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. His people are enslaved, and the reason that he gives for bringing them out of that slavery 
so that He might dwell among them, that He might live with them, that they might live in His presence. And He instructs them to build a a tent, a sanctuary. This is going back a little bit, but Exodus 25, this place in the broken world that's supposed to look like the garden, this place that's supposed to be holy, where God's presence is guaranteed and found. Now, we know that God's presence is everywhere. He's omnipresent. There's no place where God isn't. But there's a very special, proximate, I don't know, location, geographic location in this tent where His people can guarantee that He's there. And He restructures their settlement as they're wandering around. He's got this promised land for them, but on their way out of slavery and into this promised land, they have to wander through the desert. And when they set up camp, this sanctuary, this tent, is at the center where God dwells in their midst, among them. And then finally, they get to the promised land. All sorts of judges lead the people of Israel. They have a king in Saul, and then this king, David, raises up, and it feels permanent. They've been fending off, defending their land from others, conquering people who are trying to invade them, and all of a sudden, they're enjoying this time of peace, and it feels like they can rest. We have a permanent place to live now, and God is still living in a tent. And David is reflecting on that. And in 2 Samuel 7, God appears to the prophet Nathan and says it like this, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And this is the temple. So we move from the tabernacle and this tent where we know that God's presence is to this permanent structure in Jerusalem, a temple. And it's the same idea that God's presence is there, and it functions like the garden. This place is supposed to be kept sacred and holy and special. The people of Israel have all sorts of ups and downs throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and ultimately, they do get conquered. And now, they're exiled from the promised land, and God's presence leaves the temple And it's a lot like Adam and Eve getting exiled from the garden. This new separation sort of happens. The exile is a really big deal in the minds of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So how does God provide a new way for His presence? It's in Jesus. So this moves us to the New Testament and to the Gospel and to John and to our text tonight. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God comes and dwells in the midst of His people, lives with His people lives in their midst, works with them, serves them, builds things for them, loves them, cares for them, heals them, preaches to them. And you know the story at least this far probably. Jesus goes to the cross, dies, and then what happens next? He sends the Spirit. And the Spirit dwells in us. 
in the church, in the people of God again. 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And this is where we find ourselves now, that God's Spirit dwells in places like this where the people of God gather together, the church. It's debatable. We can talk about whether this is a church. That's a whole different conversation. But when the people of God are gathered, there is God in His Spirit. And then finally, looking to the end of all things, Revelation 21, we started... In Genesis, we're going to end in Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. God wants to be with you. This is the story of the Bible. This is why God sent His Son to die for a relationship that requires some sort of proximity to God, some sort of closeness to Him. But He wants us with Him. For many of us, it's really, I don't don't know, uh, maybe it's not, maybe this isn't easy for you. Um, It's easier than what I'm about to say. Uh, For a lot of us, it's easier to believe that God loves us. If you believe that this is true and you believe that Jesus went to the cross, you can say, yeah, he, He loves us. Okay, What is harder for us is to actually believe that God likes us. So I want to do something real quick. Uh, I mentioned roommates and thinking about your situation. I want everyone to close their eyes right now. Whether you live at home, whether you live with your best friends, whether you live with people that you don't like, most college students have thought about their living situation. I want you to think about what your ideal living situation is next year, and I want you to think about who you would be living with. Not by yourself, that doesn't count, you can't live by yourself. Who would you want to live with if you could live with anyone? Stop and think about it. Realistic people probably, I don't know, not celebrities, people that you know, who do you want to live with? Okay, I want you to just think, I don't want to see a show of hands, someone will probably raise their hand. How many of you thought about someone that you don't like? Like when you're thinking about, who am I going to live with next year? What is the ideal situation? How many of you thought about someone that you just don't like? You don't like being around them, you don't like how they look, you don't like what they say, I don't know, you don't like their boyfriend, their girlfriend, so you don't want them in your house. You don't like what they do. How many of you thought about that person? Probably very few people thought that's who I want to live with. So what does it mean that God wants to be with us? That He wants to live with us? Does the logic follow that maybe He likes us? For some of us, it is easy to believe that God loves us, but most of the time, we often think that He also just kind of tolerates us. But that's also not the story of the Bible. 
At the end of Genesis 1, when he looks at his creation, he says it's very good. And he goes to great lengths throughout the story of the Bible to make that happen. To make it so that we can dwell with him. And it's not just because he loves us. It's also because he likes us. God wants to be with us, not just because he loves us, but because he likes us. That is an idea that is hard. Because the reality is we aren't perfect. And when you think about the people that you want to live with, or the people that you don't want to live with, probably, you pick the very small negative things that those people bring to your life. And those get amplified in our mind. We see the negative and we focus on the negative. And that's not exactly the way that God works, especially for those who are in Him. So, uh, this is kind of a... We can talk about maybe there's some difference in terms of who God's people are and who they aren't. But if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you can rest assured that God likes you. And how do you know that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? That hinges on faith in Jesus Christ and what He did. And if the Holy Spirit is doing anything in you, it is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit is working in you, those are what get amplified in the mind of God. Jesus covers the rest. All of the negative pieces are hidden in Christ and the parts of you that look more like Him and more like Him and more like Him, God delights in that. God delights in it. And that is the language of the Bible. I took you on the story of the Bible. Now I want to go through a smattering of passages that confirm what I'm telling you here. Psalm 35, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. And say, evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. Jeremiah 32, I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. 2 Samuel 22, He rescued me because He delighted in me. That's David talking. Proverbs 3, For the Lord reproves him whom He loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. That even when we're being shaped into his likeness, he delights in us. So what exactly does this mean for us? Sure, okay. I'm trying to craft this argument that God wants to be with us, that God likes us. What does it mean if God actually likes us? How does that change our lives? For one, I think this combats something like loneliness. If God wants to be with us, lots of times when we're lonely, our thoughts can start to spiral and we think that no one wants to be with us. And that is part of what was so transformational to me about this truth. The idea that actually God wants to be with me not just has to be with me for eternity, but that He wants it. That he doesn't want me to be alone. 
that He hasn't created any of us to be alone. Again, Genesis, we're not created to be alone. And this idea that He likes us gives us value. Not out of like what we earn and what we do in His kingdom, but by virtue of who we are, that we are His. And the fact that He calls us His gives us value. It gives value to our lives. And so sometimes in our loneliness, it doesn't feel like we have a lot of value. And God has chosen humanity to partner with Him in stewarding His creation, in building this kingdom. And He didn't have to do it. He didn't need us. And that's part of what makes this so powerful. He didn't need us, but He chose us. And He continues to choose us, each of us. And that does bring value and purpose to our lives and to our being. And so in the midst of our loneliness, we see that we are not made to be alone, that God does not want us to be alone. In fact, He wants us to be with Him, and He has gone to great lengths to actually make that happen. And the fact that He loves us and likes us says something about how much He values us. He values us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. That's pretty powerful. He doesn't do that for something that He thinks is worthless. And so that is the biggest demonstration. We started this passage or uh, the sermon with uh, John 1 and the incarnation and God coming to actually be with us. And then throughout Jesus' life, he goes to the cross for us. And that demonstrates not just that he likes us. Not just that He wants to be with us, because Jesus is temporal. Uh, He lived a life, 33 years on earth, and what He's doing is providing something eternal through His death. That He wants humanity to not just live with Him 2,000 years ago, but forever. And so we see this in Jesus, that He calls us to Him to follow Him and that He loves us. So, we're going to go, I actually don't think I gave you this one, John 15, 11 through 13, just listen uh, to this one. This is Jesus talking, these things I have spoken to you, He's talking to the disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Jesus laying down his life, he demonstrates his love. But in calling us his friends, he demonstrates that he likes us. And I think we often miss that. In his death, we see that he loves us. But in calling us his friends, 
It shows that He likes us. This is something that's hard to believe, but I do think it has life-changing ramifications. And I don't know how it might change your life if you actually believed that God loved you, but that is where I want to leave you tonight. I want you to think, how does that change my life? How might that change my life if I actually believed that God loved me? So what does truth sound like? Truth sounds like God wants to be with us not just because He loves us, because He likes us. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you a prompt to talk amongst yourselves and to pray with one another. Heavenly Father, thank You that You love us. Thank You that You like us. Thank You that You call us Your friends. Thank You that You want us to be in Your presence, to be like You. I pray that each of us can begin to see the ways that you have shaped our lives to be in your presence and to be with you. I pray that we strive uh, to be with people who also love you and who reflect your love to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.